think of it as, at least with like the suicide and depression issue in society, I don't see this as a collection of individual medical issues. I see this as a cultural issue that we are creating amongst ourselves. You know, we're creating an environment with each other and the way we interact with, e with each other, the content we put out, the stuff we put out in media, all of those things are part of that equation. If that is the equation, then the natural outcome will be this certain level of depression and suicides. If we want to lower that number, we can't just approach it by just awareness. You're listening to Find the Good News, episode 111, The Butterfly on the Battlefield, featuring Justin Roberts of Echo Bravo Productions and the Do Good Web Series. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Tragedy has a way of bringing people together and producing durable bonds, often shaping and directing people to new missions. Over and again, we see survivors of extreme situations and events take on new roles with great fervor, re-entering the fray with a resolve to help others find hope as they make their way through difficult times. In this episode, I have the privilege of sharing my conversation with one such individual, former Army Chaplain Justin Roberts of Echo Bravo Productions and the co-host and producer of the web series, Do Good. Do Good is a new web series focused on telling the stories of real people and real helpers who put their resources to work for the hurricane-battered citizens of the Louisiana Gulf Coast. As I sit to reflect on my conversation with Justin, it's not lost on me that Memorial Day is approaching, which is also a sign for many weather-weary that hurricane season is upon us once again. Normally, these two things would have no relationship with each other, but the trauma and remaining PTSD of war and natural disaster have come together in a unique way in Justin Roberts and his documentaries. In our conversation, Justin shares candidly the pain and beauty of his experiences as a wartime army chaplain in Afghanistan and reveals how a meaningful encounter with a fellow soldier, his co-host for the Do Good series, created a durable bond that helped each find ways to find hope again, offering the veterans a clarity of purpose and a shifting culture, and an open space to speak truthfully and freely about their experiences. It was clear in our visit and from watching the Do Good series that Justin has found great value in connecting people to something good, something hopeful, something that reminds them of the best side of humanity. Justin even goes so far as to say he's become an expert in finding hope which he deems critical to his mental health and survival. Considering what Justin and his co-hosts have witnessed, a microcosm of war and despair that those of us living in safety, comfort, and abundance can barely imagine, it is an inspiration to bear witness as they use their skills to make peace and grow personally while not deleting or repressing some of the most painful experiences humans can endure. This conversation is a timely Memorial Day reminder that there are servicemen and women right now living in the churn and many won't come home. It is also a reminder that many of my fellow citizens along the battered and blue tarp covered Louisiana Gulf Coast are holding their breath, watching the radar, hoping and praying for a reprieve that may or may not come this hurricane season. It would be my advice to watch Justin Roberts right now and his Do Good web series and look for a reminder of that hope, that good news that everyone is holding out for. Now, it's time to forget about all the things that divide us and tear us apart and pay attention to people that, in spite of burdens, pains, and odds, turn their attention to helping others. Then press play on a little good news. Wake up 
It's morning, you're dreaming up a story I can hear the way it's going Cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance And a holy wall of light Pouring through your window Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you just want to shut it all down and get no news at all. With Find the Good News, I aim to change that by focusing on good people doing good work. I visit with artists, educators, civic and spiritual leaders, musicians, business owners, students, volunteers, and everyday citizens who are using their creativity, resources, and talents to bring hope and happiness to their corner of the world. In each episode, I dig into the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have street-level conversations about relatable things going on in their lives. Discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that are anchoring them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of news in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm going to find the good. And I love you just. Odd thing, right? I mean, do good, find the good news. <laughs> I was like, that's perfect, man. Yeah, that is wild. I uh someone had sent me your name, and you know, I usually after I kind of get to a point where I've done a certain number of interviews, I'm like, okay, I'm getting to that point where I have some in the can and then some mm-hmm. more that, you know, I'm start trying to fill the schedule for the rest of the year. So I usually will go um put a lure in the water, you know, and just ask people, go, Hey, you know, you, you know what the show's about. Do you know anybody who fits the bill? And yeah, your name popped up a couple of times. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go and I, immediately. When I went to your page, I saw your, uh, your header and it said, do good. And I said, okay. And I went down the, I pulled the thread, you know, and I, I found all your other stuff. And then when we started communicating, you were sending me links. And I was like, wow, this is, First of all, timely. We need to talk about this right now because that's yeah. what's going on. And then, too, it just just in watching your videos and then reading some of your story through your sites, uh, I realize there's a lot of other subjects that I hope we can get into today that I think will be beneficial Absolutely. to people who listen. So what I, lo- what I always start off with, though, is I ask the guests to uh, tell the audience who I'm talking to. That way I, I don't mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, the uh, so my name is Justin Roberts, and I'm a filmmaker based out of Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh, my most recent feature documentary was a documentary called No Greater Love, uh, which was about my time in Afghanistan and the lessons that I learned from the soldiers that I served with, namely that behind every act of valor is selfless love. And so we screened that film at the White House before Congress, it won 11 awards at film festivals and then uh, went out theatrically and is currently out on Amazon Prime. Oh, is it? It's on Amazon Prime? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I was actually wondering about that because I haven't seen it. And once I started yeah. learning about it through, is in the last few days as I was watching your other videos, I said, I really need to watch this. But I didn't realize it was on Amazon. So, yeah. I mean, I have a Prime account, so that's perfect. I'm going to watch, I'm gonna watch <laughs> yeah. it. That's, that's, uh, yeah. Awesome, that, that, man. That's a, that was what I, I did last. Since then, I've uh, shot two more feature films. I have another one about military chaplains coming out this uh, fall, 
we're in post-production on that right now. And then I did another one about the Baja 1000. But so filmmaker by trade, uh, when I was in the military, I was a military chaplain, army chaplain. And uh, so, you know, transitioning back to civilian life, that was pretty tough. Uh, you know, I was working on the film projects, but still like so much stuff to process. Right. And, you know, like when I was in Afghanistan, we had a lot of casualties, you know, 17 killed in action and 200 Purple Hearts out of an 800 man unit. So it was a lot of combat operations that was going on, a lot of uh, a lot of loss, a lot of hurt. And uh, so when I got back, I was struggling with depression and PTSD. Uh, I wound up becoming friends with a guy, Hank Barb, who's a former combat medic and my co-host on Do Good and lead singer for the rock band Three Beards. Yeah, and uh, we were both doing it a veteran event. I was doing the invocation; they were doing the music, and uh, you know, we started doing a morning call. You know, after we became friends, just 9 a.m. just to check up. Both of us were dealing with some of the same issues, and just support. And well, when we started, uh, you know, having this conversation, we were starting to talk about well, how can we came? From, he was a medic; I was a chaplain. We were designed to help people. <laughs> and yeah. uh, care for people. So we started having this conversation of like, well, how can we use what we're currently doing to do those same things? And um, so that's when I drove down to Texas and we started talking about, well, how can we do this? What would it look like? And that's where the concept for do good came from. So it's a, in short who I am and what we're up to. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's, that's you're, you know, I will say you're, this is a subject that is not new to this program, but you're the first person that's been on the show who actually is a military veteran. I did have a guest a couple of years ago who's become a dear friend to me. Uh, her husband was a military veteran and, you know, you brought up depression and PTSD mm-hmm. and he ended up committing suicide. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was a real hard episode and she really advocates for resources for veterans, you know, who have seen, yeah. seen what you yeah. guys see. The unit that I was attached to, my first unit in 2009, was the most suicidal battalion in the military. So we had a suicide my second day on the job, another week later, then another one, then another one. And weekly suicide attempts or gesture every single week for the first six months. Really? So it was a weekly. Yes. So every single week, either a person coming to my office saying, I want to kill myself or somebody calling me saying, hey, so-and-so just tried to kill themselves. And so that's that's on the forefront of my heart. And, you know, as somebody who, you know, my own father attempted suicide and permanently brain damaged himself. So this has always been, you know, a subject that I am constantly dealing with. And um, it's all about finding hope and figuring out your purpose and, you know, creating an environment where people can talk. Yeah. They can share. They don't feel like they're going to get insulted for saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. Yeah. And so it, it comes down to shifting culture and creating yeah. that. Yeah. So Man, all about that, everything you just said. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, you don't ever know what's going to happen when you start having conversations with a, with a broad scope of people. But what I've learned over the last two years is that there are these threads that keep coming up. And, and it, it makes me realize that these are the afflictions in our society, you know, in our world, because they come over up time and again and suicide and trauma are, um, 
two that just come up over and over and over again. And it's because in the same thing you said, creating a space where it's not stigmatized yeah. and, and, and people coming out and just talking openly and in a healthy way and freely, just that is the beginning of um, getting into some of that heart space where they can heal. You know, there, there's a, a, I was reading this article about the different perceptions of uh, societal issues between Eastern culture and Western culture. And in Western culture, we think of it as an individual medical problem, mm. you know, and like, oh, that person committed. So I wonder what was wrong right. with them. Right. Whereas in, in the East, it's what's what's wrong with us. Yes. You know, collectively. That, that, that's that we allowed such a thing to happen. And I was like that one that's closer to the truth. Mm. You know, when it comes to these types of issues, it's it's not like that person is disconnected from society, family and friends. Mm. You know, they're a part of the, you know, this overall equation. And so when we were dealing with the suicides in the unit, we actually had to, one, shift the way we were going about it at first. At first, suicide awareness, you know, campaigns was that basically you put them in front of a PowerPoint presentation, tell them not to kill themselves. <laughs> right. You're informing them not to kill themselves. It does nothing. You know, it, it doesn't shift the dial. Actually, there's an increase during Suicide Awareness Week. Uh, really? I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Wow. The the two suicides that we had at the front were during Suicide Awareness Week. Wow. And man. so I was like, well, that's not helpful. That's not fixing it. And so what we did to shift those suicides was we stopped the PowerPoint presentations. No more PowerPoint. We sat down at groups, we took off our rank, and we started having a conversation about, yeah. you know, what are we, if we're willing to run through bullets to help each other, what are we willing to do here and now to help each other? And it, long story short, I'll, I'll be fire hydrant on this one. Uh, we did that program, conversational brotherhood. We did that program, we deployed, we had a very traumatic deployment. You know, 17 killed in action and 200 Purple Hearts out of an 800-man unit. So it was a lot of firefights. The expectation was, since we were suicidal on the front end, we had a lot of combat, we were going to be more suicidal on the back end. But instead, we had zero suicides and a 70% reduction in suicidal ideations. And it wasn't because they just had a good-looking, smart chaplain. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was because, honestly, they started checking in with each other. The culture had shifted. They were having the conversations. They were supporting each other. They were fixing the problem, not me. And it was that brotherhood and friendship and just creating that that type of environment where they could talk that fixed it. And so how do we bring that home in the midst of our own growing suicide epidemic? Mm. You know, the, the veteran population has 20 plus per day and the civilian population is upticking as well. This is a cultural problem. And I think that that's that's why I was really interested in trying to create a platform for positive stories. And at first, the idea was focusing on veteran issues so we can start addressing that problem. But I was like, you know what? Whenever the disaster hit, let's let's open this wide. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's why I dig, dig what you're doing, too, man. It's it's creating positive you know, inspiring, you know, uh, media. That's well, I mean, in a, in a world with all of these signals that are really dark. I mean, look, I, I'm not just, I tell this to people all the time. This show 
is a part of keeping me healthy too. You yeah. know, I mean, you do the work, but I'm sure we're not, you're not insulated from the same traumas and, and the, you know, afflictions that come at everybody else. Right. I mean, yeah. you still have your own things going on in your life, the realities of just being here. And, mm-hmm. you know, what I found, it has a lot to do with consumption. You know, I started to see that what am I consuming intentionally? And then also what am I consuming unintentionally like what am i just picking up just walking around through this world what what are the messages what are the stories um you know you just can't hide in your home yeah and there's a lot of ugly things to look at and i know myself i hope i do to some degree i mean i'm almost 50 and i'm going okay i know how i respond to those things those things if i'm not careful i can start tying a a knot and making a, a a long string of knots that I just touch every day that are negative. And if I keep pulling that thread, you know, and keep doing that, it's going to lead me into a place where I'm no good. I, I'm in a bad, unsafe spot and dangerous yeah. to myself. So I go, okay, when I have these conversations like I'm having with you, they literally help me like just in yeah. that one, they help one person I know, and that's me. I mean, it really does give me hope. Every time I leave these conversations, I go, oh, it's like a breath of oxygen, you know, just clean air to my soul. Yeah. I get reminded that there's people like you out there and all these others, and I just go, okay, that's hope. That's another, that's another, <laughs> that's a positive <laughs> knot I can tie, you know, <laughs> and, uh, we need more signals like this. We need more like what you're doing. We really well, do. It's like I, I think of it as, you know, at least with like the suicide and depression issue in society. I don't see this as a collection of individual medical issues. I see this as a cultural issue that we are creating amongst ourselves you know we're creating an environment with each other and the way we interact with with each other um the content we put out the stuff we put out in media all of those things are part of that equation and so if if that is the equation then the natural outcome will be this certain level of depression and suicides and so if we want to lower that number, we can't just approach it by just awareness because everybody's pretty freaking aware that it's mass depression and there's a suicide problem. Like raising that awareness doesn't necessarily fix it. It's like, like coming across a guy who's like, you know, was shot and bleeding on the ground and saying, everybody, everybody, he has been shot. We need to talk about him being shot. The guy's still shot. He's bleeding out. We need to talk about this. Like, no, you got to right. focus on the solution. And um, you know, let me see if I if I said, uh, don't think about the pen. Don't think about the pen. Don't think about the pen. What are you thinking about? Right, right. The pen. All of yeah. your energy is then drawn to that. And so, the way the military for the last twenty years was approaching the suicide issue was saying, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Everybody's thinking about it then, and and then you have an uptick in it. Yeah. So the solution is really the antithesis, and the antithesis of suicide and depression is purpose. What is your purpose? What are you driving toward? What are you passionate about? Yeah. What are you excited about? And if you haven't figured that out yet, then your purpose is to find your purpose and drawing that energy. And so it's purpose and fellowship are the antidotes. Um, there was 
and I'll be brief on this because I could talk about this subject. Oh all day. man, don't 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 governor yourself. I'm okay. Right. Let's just uh, let it flow. Well, so there was there's there's this great book called Man's Search for Meaning by a guy. Oh, named I'm familiar with it. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so in it, like you know, it, it, for the audience who's not tracking, you know, in it, he's a psychologist, psychiatrist, who was Jewish during the rise of the Nazis in Germany. He was picked up, arrested, thrown in the concentration camps, but he was allowed to live because he was a psychiatrist and, and a doctor. So they wanted to utilize his skill set. So he's sitting there in the concentration camps, though, and he's watching as the other Jewish prisoners um, and people who were just in the concentration camp, they were becoming, they were falling into two different groups. You had some that were becoming more animalistic, uh, murdering, cheating, lying, stealing, you know, basically taking an awful situation and making it even worse. And he was watching that play out. And then on the other side of that, you had people who were becoming more hopeful, more helpful, you know, being good to one another, even be willing to sacrifice their lives for others. And he watched that play out and he's asking himself and asking them, what's the difference between these two groups? And the first thoughts are, well, maybe it's like a religious thing. And it wasn't. You got Jews, Christians, whatever on one side and on the same side as well. Then he thought, well, maybe socioeconomic background. Well, it was you had rich and poor before on one side and on the other. And the only thing that he saw that made the difference was the group that was becoming more animalistic could never define what their purpose was, what they were striving for, what they were trying to survive for. Whereas the other side could always identify what that thing is. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it was a higher power. Sometimes it was, I need to go find my mom. I need to connect, reconnect with family. I need to go and paint this great painting or do this great thing. They could always identify though, what that purpose was. And so he wound up, you know, founding logotherapy, you know, a major branch in counseling psychology. And if you go to counseling now, you're probably going to get logotherapy. And so the principle of it is critical. And that is the antithesis uh, of suicides and also an incredible cure for depression. It's, it's I'm not going to say it's a fix-all for everything, but it gets you – if you have a why, you can o- overcome almost any how is one of his famous, famous quotes. And so it really does help. And so that's that's what I'm passionate about with this series. What we're doing is we, we're finding the inspirational and hopeful stories. Um, and this is kind of going back to do good. Hopefully my rabbits are chaseable. Yeah, oh yeah, we're on it. <laughs> we're on it. Yeah, but so, you know, when I when I went to meet with my buddy Hank, you know, we were talking about, well, how can we – you know, basically reignite our own purpose and yeah. and to, to lift ourselves out of this funk. I get this. I do. Yes. Uh, and, and so at first, you know, like the idea was to call it the good stuff. Cause I was like, well, that's, that's like a good, like alcohol double entendre there. Yep, and, yep. Uh, <laughs> but then it's like somebody else was already doing the good stuff on, on YouTube. And my wife came up with the idea of just calling it do good. It's like, so interesting these stories about where we get the names. I I, I ran into a similar thing. I was going to just call mine "Find the Good," 
Yeah. And I just, the domain, I, I couldn't get the domain and it was taken. And there was just, there were things that people had started and kind of ghost town, you know, like was dead, yeah. but I really couldn't acquire it. So I said, well, the domain dot news was available. And I thought, well, you know, if I just change the name of the show to find the good news, then I can get the domain find the good dot news yeah. and it all works out. <laughs> and so it's funny though, how you land, you know, you do what you can with what you, what's available. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, as uh, on branding wise, I was like, "Well, that's even simpler." And it's like, yeah, you know, the, uh, um, and the it worked with our model as well. Mm. You know, it's like so. What we were trying to figure out was most of the organizations right now in the middle of the pandemic, most nonprofits haven't been able to do fundraising. You know, a lot of people were financially impacted. And so they don't have the money to donate. But plus, also, those organizations couldn't do in-person fundraising for over a year. So that shut the doors on a lot of these nonprofits. And, um, you know, the ones that wound up responding to Hurricane Laura and Hurricane Delta and the natural disasters, a lot of those were running on fumes, as is. Mm-hmm. You know, showing up to try to still help people, but they don't have the money. Right. And uh, so we were like, well, what can we do? The plan that we came up with, and at the time when we came up with the idea, we were focused on veteran organizations. Um, the plan that we came up with is that we will donate the monetization of views, the money that the YouTube videos make, to the charity. So that way, just by watching and sharing, the audience can still make a difference for those organizations. And so we came up, we had the name, we came up with a plan. We knew that we wanted to do it in the near future. And the next day, that's when I found out that Hurricane Laura was headed to Lake Charles. Man, timing, right? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, man, I'm not ready, but let's let's do it. Yeah. And uh, so I, I traveled down. I got the wife and kids, you know, out of the city. And, um, you know, the storm hit. And uh, when I came back, I mean, like the next day we were filming and uh, we decided to focus in on, you know, the disaster first as our first season. And uh, so we've got two episodes done so far and I'm in the middle They're of great, by the way. Third. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's 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 I think it's interesting when you point a camera or, you know, uh, it, you know, put a spotlight on just good people. Yeah. You know, it it usually kind of tells itself. Does and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's so that's how we got started with Do Good, and that's why we're doing it. You know, um, it's we want it to make an impact, make a difference, but also for people to connect on something that is good and inspires you, makes you actually feel better. Yeah, of you know. Depressed. That that's right. I mean, and that's a hard dance, right? I mean, that's a balance. That's one of the things I, I've discovered and I've tried to commit to is that we do kind of have to walk into. And your videos are a testament to this too. I would think you have to walk in, I, and I say it this way all the time: you have to walk into the cave, and it's dark in there, you know, mm-hmm. and it's covered in the walls are covered in things you're not sure what they are, you know, and you're just feeling your way around, and that's scary for almost all of us, and. Mm-hmm. We just don't need to stay there. We have to go there, but we have to light the lights on the way out, you know, for the yeah. next people. And your videos are in that category to me. You know, they those subjects are hard. I mean, the one that yeah. I just watched, your most recent one about the lady that was living in her car, that was hard enough. But, you know, in that video, 
the thing that hit me the most was the loss of her son. Yeah. Because we lost my father-in-law during the second hurricane to a heart attack. And it was, I, I, it reminded me of a conversation I had on Holly beach many years ago. I was actually, I think that's the first time I ever heard your name. This is the strangest intersection. It didn't even occur to me till just now. I was out there filming, taking photographs for the Convention and Visitors Bureau. We were doing a campaign for them. And I had went out to Holly Beach with a couple who had volunteered to be the models for this Holly Beach photo shoot. And while we were doing the photography, uh, they mentioned your documentary. I think they may have, I don't know if they were friends with you. I can't remember. It's been a lot of years, but they mentioned your documentary, you know, no greater love. That was the first time I'd ever heard of it. And I, and you know, out of sight, out of mind, there's so much Mm -hmm. going on. It didn't come back in front of me again till recently, but I do remember that that day, but I ended up getting stuck in the sand out there and I had to call the sheriff's department to come pull me out. And while I was out there, there was, they came and they were, uh, and there was another gentleman out there and we got to talking about hurricane Rita yeah. And he said something that just stuck with me, and it, I, I never thought I'd be living it, you know. But he said, yeah, there's a lot of victims, he said, but people don't think about the victims of that storm that came after the storm. Yeah. You know, and he said, my dad was one of those. He said it was just too stressful. He was too old. He was having to do the work of a young man. There were just so many things to deal with mentally, emotionally, and physically. He said and he was he one day he just had a heart attack. He said, and I will always tell people that I consider him a victim of the hurricane. Yeah. And it I, it broke my heart that day. But then all these years later for that to happen and to go, I consider my father-in-law a victim of, you know, this, these hurricanes. I really yeah. do. I mean, it was because he wouldn't have been doing that level of uh, work and that level of stress. I mean, granted, I'm sure there's health reasons. You can't, I mean, I know that's a part of it, but at the same time, I just know that was a factor. And so when I heard that, this, you know, watching that video, factor. it just hit me. I was like, gosh, how many people lost? I mean, they were, he was in the car. He was living in the car with her. Yeah. Right. I mean, that yeah. was, I was like, gosh, this is just so hard to go into. Right. And that leaves a mark on somebody's life. I mean, that just, mm-hmm. that, that's a trauma. It is. And it's like the, um, there's a fine balance that we have to, to do like with this type of subject matter. Cause like it's, it, and that, that's hard in the editing and the writing and, and, and also your own personal experience of it. And what I do is I just try to share how I'm processing it. Yeah. And I have for survival reasons, I've become an expert in finding hope. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. like you know my my uh, you know grew up. My dad was a drug dealer. It was a tough home situation, abuse of all that awful stuff. And then I went through the military experience, which was trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And then I get out, and I'm struggling with depression myself, and and, and all those things. Um, and then you know my my home gets destroyed. My office gets wrecked, lose my car, and I was like, you know, at this point, I'm like, we're good, man. You know, it's 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 uh it's weird, like the um the way that you perceive this stuff, if you if you actually shift yourself and, and shift your paradigm, then you actually you don't become depressed when this kind of stuff hits. You become hopeful and you start. So 
I say, I say all that with like the stories and the way I'm approaching them too. It's with that same type of um, attitude that you know it was awful what happened to Christine, and it's awful what happens in this life. It is a bitter. There's a quote that she said. I think it was like it's a. Um, it's it's a tragic but beautiful thing, this life. You know, and it's it's you're going to die. You know, you you are going to die of something horrible, and but there's so much beauty in between now and then, and there's so many amazing things, and so it's trying to grab a hold of it. So like with this episode, I thought was just so beautiful, was her attitude. And Miss Leanne's attitude, they were just champs. Yeah. They, they were positive. They were, yes, it was tough. And yes, it's absolutely tragic. But hopeful in what God is doing, hopeful in what the people around him was doing. And, and just so grateful for Becky stepping up. You know, this amazing woman who, you know, she has three disabled children, two adopted. And all of these other people that she's taking care of. What a hero. And just the hope that she gives you. And like when I was talking with her, I was just trying not to start boohooing myself. And, yeah. you know, you just hear me snotting in the camera. You know, just, <laughs> right. I was trying to compose myself. But well, I was it's like, difficult because, I mean, it yeah. reaches into your humanity, you know, the best part of you. What a beautiful person. And it's like so I walked away from that episode. I was like I wasn't expecting I, I knew I was going to interview Christine. I wasn't expecting to meet Becky and Miss Leanne and find out about their stories. But when I found that out, I was like, this episode that was going to be just a 15-minute thing focused on the Cajun Navy, I was like, it's it's got to – we've got to tell these stories now too because that's where the hope's at. Long-time Find the Good News listeners know that we often meander into topics on spirit, mysticism, religion, and wisdom traditions. If you are interested in these topics, I encourage you to seek out my new podcast, The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren. On The Dawn Deacon Podcast, I consider my small place in the whole of creation, asking the old questions that have perplexed human beings for ages. Why are we here? Is there a reason for our existence? How do we balm our sufferings? enlighten our minds, and awaken our hearts. Are there powers, energies, and realities just beyond our ability to comprehend them? On the Dawn Deacon podcast, I share the teachings, practices, and perspectives I have gathered as I've made my varied, sacred, ordinary way. I hope you'll join me at the Dawn Deacon podcast so that we can traverse this landscape together. Just search The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren in your favorite podcast app or search engine, then subscribe. I mean, one of the things that just hit me in watching your videos is um, the expression that people aren't paying attention to this area, you know, and that there's no help yeah. uh, the or the level of help that people expect there to be. And I think you touched on that earlier in something you said, you know, is that everything has been sort of stressed to the seams, you know, this past year for resources. And I think this is just the wrong time. I mean, these storms yeah. hit and you've got just a lack of resources and manpower on, on just about every front, you know, in this well, country. Yeah. I think though, too, it's, 
uh, it was in the middle of a contentious election. Mm, that's true. And as a country, the it was a conversation. The other conversation was so much louder. Nobody yes. heard us dying in the corner. Oh, that's absolutely true. It's a signal to noise ratio situation. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, it's like the the press didn't really want to talk about it. It's like the and I, I don't want to blame the the press and the media, but it they were getting so many more hits. Absolutely. On the the arguments in the election that uh, you know we lost two American towns. You know, population yeah. was devastated, wrecked, and um, you know decisions were made. You know, as yeah. far as like what stories to talk about, and this this didn't get the top. But and the struggle of that is is that we will spend far more time on gossip and controversy than we will the actual needs of communities and the American communities. And, you know, I don't want to just gripe about it for us. You know, it was tragic for us. But if this is the way that we operate, then, you know, gossip and and scandal and controversies is going to take front stage while the next community gets hit and the next community and the next community. Right. Right. And so is that really what we want to do as a country? Is that really how we want to operate? Yeah. And, the uh, the press always has the ability to focus the spotlight. They have that choice. Um, it's just a question of what is best for communities and society. You know, Trump could have said uh, something about his hair, and the, and the press was going to give that story right and, and airtime over. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Over, and you still over, see over, that. Really I mean, through. nothing's changed. I mean, there it's the truth. I, I think that. On a very small scale, I, I experienced that even with this experiment, with this show. Yeah. You know, um, I can, if I post something that's even borderline negative, about as negative as I'm willing to be. Yeah. Maybe I would call it negative helpful. And that, that would mm-hmm. probably be the best way. Like something that we, it's like, hey, this is ugly. We need to look at it. It's not gossip, but it's ugly. Um, an environmental issue, something like that, that I care about. And I go, Hey, you don't know about this. You need to see it just so you're aware. Yeah. Well, if I post something like that, I can get interactions all day long. It'll create conversation. There's comments, there's likes, there's opinions, but it's actually fruitful to some degree. But I have a harder time getting that kind of traction on these positive conversations. And yeah. it, it can be almost, um, depressing in itself because you're going okay has a lot of energy and time you know that and passion that you put in and you uh you have to some there have been times it's ebbed and flowed over the cut these last two years where i've been you know is this the one where i lay it down you know Mm -hmm. um is this the one where i go okay look i'm putting too much energy into this more energy than and it's not making the, the signals not getting out there but then i have a conversation you know, like this one or in the guests and it's like an invigoration. I'm going, oh, but what if one person, you know, stumbles upon this conversation and they hear it and it actually does give them hope. It gives them some perspective, you know, or it's there's yeah. something that they take away that gives them a shift. I, I think it's an interesting thing like the um, it's. It's a relationship between the media and the depressive cycle that we've created. You know, the the media is pumping out angry 
you know, vulgar, um, uh, tragic content because we eat it up. And like we're we're built to be constantly looking for danger, you know, like evolutionary. Yeah. You know, we were designed to constantly scan the horizons looking for the next thing that might kill us. Yeah. And and whether it be, you know, tales of an army, you know, about to charge in or there's a lion out in the woods or things like that, that kind of information is what our brain is constantly scanning for. And, you know, I think what we've done is we've created uh, we're a part of the cycle as an audience as well. And right. the problem is, is like we're constantly sucking up gossip and tragic, you know, just, you know, material, the depressive material that it does create, you know, uh, a perception of the world, which isn't the reality. Most things aren't as bad as we make them out to be. And people are on average really good and they want to do good. Yeah, I do believe that. That's the one thing that I, I do, no matter how my pendulum swings in that department. I, I can always remember that, that, that people I really do believe genuinely are good. That does not mean that I haven't lost trust sometimes in people <laughs> yeah. because I, I do, because I, I want people to show, <laughs> <laughs> I want them to show me, you know, like uh, remind me that this isn't a fiction that I just believe in. But, uh, yeah. but I find that regardless of the bad that I do see, I, I, when I do encounter good people, I'm always amazed. I mean, even like this conversation and, and hearing what you've done, I think that's why I love nature so much. I really do. I mean, I, and this is a, a little short story, but you know, my, I told you we lost up my father-in-law and before the storms, he had bought us a hibiscus tree, you know, and we were when he passed away, that tree took on new meaning, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, as it grows and blooms each year, we'll know that, you know, he's, it's something that he left behind that our kids will get to see grow. And it's just a reminder of, of his life. And it survives the storms, you know, it blew over, but I, I reached, I, you know, I, I, uh, turned it back up and tied it off and it was, it was growing again. And I was like, well, that's good. It made it through, you know? And then the ice storm came and it, it, yeah. it, you know, it was bad. Like the whole thing, it was just, I kept thinking, oh, it's going to bloom. And I kept clipping it back further and further and it just wouldn't bloom. And so it was a little sad. I mean, my, I saw my wife going out there and she would sit by it, you know, and I, and I knew she was just hoping, especially when spring came, she was like, I just want to see one little shoot, one little leaf, you know, to know that it's going to make it. And weeks started going by. No, no, no growth. You know, I had clipped it off down to the ground and I was like, at this point, you know, it's probably not going to make it. So I went and bought a new hibiscus tree. I dug it up and I put a new tree in the ground and, you know, for her, just so there was something growing there. And I dug the old one up and put it in a pot. And so I, I don't ever throw things just away. I kind of keep the clippings and stuff in a pile. And so I was, I was looking through the pile the other day. And as I was picking that up to kind of get the old soil off of it, I noticed one little green shoot coming off of the one that I dug up. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So it is going to be OK. And I saved it and put it in a new pot with some fresh soil. And I showed her I was like, it's just one little green leaf coming off the side. But it it gets into what you're talking about, about. For me, nature in that regard, it's like, don't give up, e even though you can't see it. 
even though it looks like it's it's done and dead and damaged sometimes out of sight there are processes happening that we just really don't see you know and and we when we move on i could we could move on from those things and go oh well that's a that's a um, dead issue it's done don't 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 look at it don't save it don't hope get something new move on but i think hope is like that little leaf it's like yeah but just be patient because change is happening all the time it's like the processes of things it's built in the other day heard someone say things are beautiful because they don't last and i was like that's the hard truth to accept you know yeah it's a hard thing to accept that sometimes things are beautiful because they're temporary yeah, it's, I, I wish I could hug my kids forever. Like, ever so often that thought hits me whenever I'm hugging them. I'm like, yeah, someday I'm going to have a last hug. Someday, you know, I won't see them again. Someday. And I was like, oh, man, that is so depressing. But this oh, moment is beautiful. And I, I can't live in this, you know, that other reality because, you know, I'll miss this one. Yeah. And I'll miss this moment. And so, I, you know, my, my thinking is like, it's. It really is like a the issue I think that we're experiencing as a society, you know, isn't Republican versus Democrat, liberals versus conservatives, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I think it's just a simple um, I think the real conflict is between those who are fighting for good, who are wanting unity, who are wanting hope versus cynicism yeah you know who are you know working towards good versus selfishness mm-hmm. and i think that's the real conflict that goes on and it's an eternal conflict it's always going on yeah. you know throughout human history and uh, so i don't think anything that we're experiencing is anything new or more dire than past scenarios or situations um it's just that constant struggle that's going on but the dynamics have changed as far as technology. You know, we are able to press out stories faster. And so I think, you know, what we're mutually working on, you know, is very similar. And it's, you know, trying to spread out more hope and good. And it's desperately needed right now. It really so, is. It's yeah. medicine. It's medicine. I mean, it it's a result, too. That's that's. Something uh, I have a a personal podcast that doesn't have guests. It's just me kind of sharing some thoughts. And one of the things I, as I was walking and thinking about this and all my personal trauma, I was thinking about trauma responses, you know, and how there are so many negative trauma responses. I mean, we each have them. I mean, to some degree, there's something that's going to trigger us and we may not even know why some trauma that has occurred to us. And then we respond in a negative way. But I start, but I got to thinking about the positive trauma responses, you know, and it's like, oh, there are such things as positive. I've done, I do things that come from bad places, yeah. you know, and I would say this show is kind of like that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's like leaning into the wind, you know, when it's blowing on me and going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to walk through this uh, yeah. and, and it's going to be something good. I'm going to carry something with me one of my guests was he he was talking about the shamanic um cycle and he talked about drug addiction because he was a drug addict and he said you know in their culture the shamanic cycle is you know you 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 move into what they call the underworld or something dark he said but the shaman 
when it goes into that dark place and he carries out medicine for all the others in the world who are going to be going through what the shaman has went through. And he compared his drug addiction to that. You know, he said, that was yeah. my, that was my cycle. I had to go down into that place. And I, I'm luckily, he said he survived it, but he learned so much by coming out of it and bringing that to the world. And I thought, you know, that's such a good uh, map for me. It helps me to remember like what, or, or maybe even culturally, in our community, when we see these hurricanes, they come through. We don't know when the next one will be, but being willing, as you said, to not lose hope, to go, okay, well, we may have to go to, into this dark place. We may have to go into this underworld, so to speak, but we can rise out of it. And that's what I'm seeing in your videos, too, that cycle. I mean, th that's exactly mm -hmm. the cycle I see, and especially in that last one. I'm like, there's the the healers, the helpers showing up right after the underworld experience. To bring yeah. hope and light. Well, it's like the the way that I process um, or the way that I work on the films, my thought process is it's um, – I'm still a chaplain. Like, and, and chaplains, it's not about beaching over the head with my own theology. Right. But helping – you know, the, the saying is to, to bring God to the soldiers and soldiers to God. And – the um, so the majority of what I did as a chaplain was pastoral counseling, and then just coming alongside people in the midst of whatever they're going through and trying to help them find hope and healing. And um, the way that I structured the first film, No Greater Love, you have your typical hero's journey story structure. My second master's was actually in writing, uh, media arts and, and communication with a focus in writing. So you know, you have your typical story structure that you put into the film. What I did to undergird it is I also used the counseling model, particularly the crisis counseling. Um, so that way you talk about the trauma, what happened. Then you talk about, well, how did you process it? How did it impact you? And not pulling away, actually being honest about it. Here's really what happened to me. So, like, whenever you watch the film, you'll see all different kinds of combat trauma that these guys went through. Um, one guy getting shot in the head, then falling down a mountain ten stories. Just rolling down it. He survived. Um, you know, other people getting blown up, wounded, things like that. It's tough. If you want to look at war, here's what the truth is. Here's the yeah. reality of it. You know, there's no I'm not pulling the punches on that. Here is the actual trauma. I'm not showing a bunch of I could have shown much more graphic footage. Didn't want to, didn't need to. Um, but talking about that and then seeing how they process it. But then, you know, how it impacted them is the second phase. And then the third phase is how did they find hope? How did they push forward? How did yeah. they move on? The guy that got shot. You know, in the head, it knocked him out, didn't penetrate his skull, and he rolled 10 stories down a mountain. Six months later, he came back to us in the middle of the deployment to really? lead a platoon and one of the largest operations in the Afghan war. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> so, it really is. So, you know, it's strength, resiliency, but how did he do it? You know? Where does that come from? Like, where, yes. is the, where is that spring flow from? Yes, and it's 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 in large part he came back because he just wanted to serve his guys. 
he he was willing to clean toilets. He was willing to do whatever job was necessary or needed. He was there to serve because he loved his soldiers, the guys he was with. That's why he was fighting to come back. He was lying to doctors, did whatever it took to come back because of love. And so if we want to get to the core truth of who these people are, that's who they are. You know, and it's like, you know, it, it, the the idea that they go out to hate or they, they sign up because they just want to kill something. What leads them towards those courageous actions is always connected to love. And so when it comes to like these types of films, what I'm doing is I'm trying to embed the medicine into it. And it's the same thing with like with the Do Good series. I'm taking the same style of approach. It's like we have the story, but who are the heroes? Because if we can process that ourselves, and, and that one, we're learning about what is the, the damage that's happening in our own country. But two, who are these amazing people, and how can I actually come alongside them? You know, How could I take part in this, whether it's in my local community, what I'm personally going through, or actually getting involved in this particular story? Yeah. And so I think if you want to mobilize more heroes in this country, we have to tell more heroic stories. If we want more good in this country, we have to talk about more good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We, I, share I, the good news. we have to. It, it's true. We really yeah. do have to do that. We have to elevate those things above the things that are being celebrated right now. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it, and that is difficult, I think, for people to do, because as you said earlier, it is so addictive it's like bad calories. I mean, that's that's the best thing I can yes. think of. It's like, I shouldn't eat this, but gosh, it tastes so good. And it's so temporary, that feeling of uh, hate and vindictiveness and spite and uh, us versus them and all of that stuff that poisons us. You know, yeah. it, it feels great to be and it's very tribal. You know, I watched this science fiction show called the expanse and they were there was an episode do you love the expanse yes that was a great show and there was one episode where he was talking about tribal society and how when the tribes are big and they start getting smaller and smaller that's when you see a lot of problems and i was like but he's talking about us right now i mean we're getting into these tiny little us versus them tribes and it feels great to be accepted you know like i'm I'm in the group i'm in i'm in the club you know as long as i adhere to the thought patterns and the behaviors yeah but it doesn't help us figure out who we are really individually at all in that regard we're just adopting the robes of another you know the tribe and i wonder it's like through evolution i think we're built to need tribes like we need to belong to a tribe um, like a, a collective that's larger than a family. We need a family, and then we need a group that's a little bit larger than that. So what's weird is you have guys who come, when they leave the military, the military was their tribe often. Right. And then they get out, they're like, well, where's my tribe next? And so that's yeah. how you had the biker movement. The biker movement was a lot of veterans who left the military. They they were struggling with a bunch of, you know, Vietnam guys, struggling yeah, with a bunch sure. of issues, you know, detached from society. So they started that tribe. But you get guys bowling, golfing, you know, everybody kind of takes on a thing yeah. and it becomes their, their mini tribe. But some people it's, uh, politics. Yeah. You know, and, it, and us and versus them, like I'm a liberal or a conservative. Yeah. Adopting and, some kind of banner <laughs> of some it was sort. It's so funny to me. I have like, so 
I have a bunch of conservative friends, you know, prior military. So I've got that group on my Facebook group. And then I, I work in, in the Hollywood industry. So I've got a bunch of liberal friends. Right. And they're both, both of what they're saying is popping up on my Facebook feed <laughs> so you're at the same time. Two yeah. streams. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's weird. It's like they, they don't know each other. But, I, you know, and it's it's so odd to me because, like, the – they, they make so many assumptions about the other side, but really, they're not that different. You know, they have just a differences on a few opinions, but more, they're both good people, you know, both sides. You know, yeah. they, they both want good for this country, you know, and it's, it's become so, their assumptions on each other is just so toxic, though. Oh, I, I I totally get it. Yeah, I totally get this. You know, I uh, had an experience, a real tiny personal experience recently. I had put a roadside memorial out for my dad and uh, out in the country to at a place that I know he liked. And I was out there uh, putting a Marine Corps emblem on it. And a guy stopped. You know, nobody ever stops that roadside markers, but I guess cause I was parked near it and it was something that hadn't been there very long. He, he must drive that road. Yeah. And he, he pulled over and he, and he got out of his car and I just was like, Oh gosh, you know, I just, I might, my, my um, distrust like kicked in immediately, you know? Yeah. And you know, I've got like free Tibet stickers and, you know, camping stickers and like a Biden Harris sticker <laughs> on the back of my truck and all this, like it's 1984 and all this kind yeah. of stuff. I mean, it's just like, that's what's on my truck. Yeah. And he had like Trump, Trump stickers and, you know, come and take it, you know, Mulan Lobs stuff all over. And I was like, Oh, he's coming over here. He had a make America great again hat on. And I just had to get over it. Like I just, I did. I'm not going to lie. I like went, take a deep breath. You know, this is just like triggering you because of everything that you've read and everything that you see. I mean, I had to like have that conversation with myself. Yeah. And he walked up to me and he said, do you know this fellow right here? And I said, well, that's my dad. And he was like, well, me and my wife were driving by and we saw the American flags on there. And I said, I wonder who that fellow is. And something must have happened. I said, well, I just put a plaque on there. And we got to talking about my dad and Vietnam and, yeah. And he was like, so you grew up out here and we just had a conversation about the road and the country and the pasture. And he said, yeah, so that's nice that you did that for your dad. He said, I wish I wish all kids would do that for their parents, you know, like, you know, do things like that to remember. I mean, it was just a real civil, sweet conversation. We shook hands and he drove off and I was actually at the end so thankful that he stopped. Like it yeah. gave me an opportunity to to talk to somebody about my pop, you know, and share some things about him and like his life with somebody. And I thought, well, isn't that the point of a memorial anyway? I mean, isn't that what I wanted? Yeah. You know, it's not decoration. It's like a place to remember somebody. And if this guy hadn't stopped, yeah. I wouldn't have had that opportunity. So he was covered in banners and flags that weren't my banners and flags. <laughs> but in that moment, none of that mattered. He didn't treat me differently and I didn't treat him differently. And I thought this right here, if I could just put this in a bottle and throw the rest away, this is what I want. Like this is humanity. This is the best of us right here. You know what the, uh, what I saw, and I said it in the greater love too. It's like, yeah, I understood America so much more on the mountaintops of Afghanistan than I do here. Mm. Because you had people from all different kinds of races, backgrounds and religions, political creeds coming together for something greater than themselves and even be willing to die for one another. And so what I thought was so interesting, like over there, 
what is a uh, scandalous joke or uh, a political fight over here is just a joke over there. Mm, And and the filter is off. They don't care because the thing is, at the end of the day, they know that that dude will die for them, loves them enough to die for them, that if they get shot in the middle of a battlefield, that guy is going to run over there and try to drag him out because he cares. And once you know that that person sincerely loves you to that level, politics, religion, race, all those things become just a joke. Yeah. It's not important. It's, yeah. it's, it's all of it. It's, it's just your preference or who you are, but it's only skin deep. Yeah, I love that. If, I'm, I've, if, I, if I truly love you and, and you know that I love you, all the other stuff becomes stuff we can actually talk about then. Yeah, it's like that's and, the root, right? Like that's the tap root. And, and that's, that's the, the most – what I love about this country is we are so diverse – it's one of the most beautiful things because it's we are the, one of the most diverse places in the world, and so we have all these conflicts. But the most American thing is all this diversity of ideas and diversity of race and religion, and it's, that's what makes us American. And when we actually love one another and are willing to serve and fight and die for one another, that was the most American thing I've ever seen. And that made me proud to be a soldier then. That made me just, you know, uh, patriotic, I think, in the best sense. And, and like, because I was so proud of that and witnessing that and seeing that. And then you come back here and it's just god awful. <laughs> I have like, heard this man, from so many soldiers. This and bring it home. Yeah. yeah. It's like, so many soldiers have a hard time. And I'm sure you've experienced this too. I mean, I can't speak from that experience, but people, I have friends that I've talked to, who do who have been deployed and then they come back and have to get into the world and get a regular job. Some yeah. of them just want to go back to, you that. know, yeah. want to live in that kind of state. Like, and it's like, I felt the same way. It's like, the only thing was, I was like, if I could have my wife with me, but her not be in danger, then yeah. I'd be completely happy. Yeah. But Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't allow that. Yeah. I mean, you see that in, in with prisoners sometimes, too. I read an article recently by a prisoner who was he had been in prison a very long time, but he had been in it so long that he'd had some serious critical shifts within him. I mean, he was a incredible writer, incredible thinker. You know, his heart had completely changed. And I mean, I love reading his writings. Mm-hmm. But when he writes about trying to fit <clears throat> in the world, he, he said, I just don't belong anymore. I mean, I just out here i don't understand it you know out here um there's no brotherhood and there's no camaraderie he said even though in prison is misery you know and all these terrible things he said but there's just something lacking out here that i did have in there so he's kind of caught as the sort of shadow person and it is uh that he said you know i'm 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 almost not real out here yeah Oh man, that's hard. And it's like that that's what a lot of veterans I think experience too. You know, it's like you you're a part of a tribe of people who you know love and care for you and are willing to to fight and die for you. Um and then you come here and you don't have that. Um or it's hard to find. It's hard to build. Mm-hmm. Whereas over there you're given with a group of people and you're immediately put and surrounded by a uh some very very dangerous challenges yeah. so you're immediately bonded whereas 
you know, here it, it is um, the biggest struggle that I had, like entering into Hollywood and working on No Greater Love was this. Um, I came in with a mindset of we're here to do this mission and for a good cause, you yeah. know, and for a right reason. And it's Hollywood's not that way. <laughs> you know, the uh, it's a, you know it's like I I came in like completely culture shocked because it is the complete antithesis of it. You know, it is I am here for myself, dog eat dog. You know, but plus also you know soldiers are very honest. It's a very honest type culture. They'll tell you straight up they don't like you in in in, in wonderful um, in wonderful ways. And uh, whereas Hollywood, it's, you know, very deceptive and um, someone will tell you something to your face and you'll believe it. And it's like not that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like it's the it's not honest communication. And um, so two opposite cultures. And so I went through like, you know, just a lot of struggles going through that. Um, And that's a more extreme part of American culture. But, you know, it, it is a culture shock leaving that type of environment. And uh, readapting, you know, to this. I, but I, I, I wish that I think the solution of what America needs is actually a little bit something closer to that. Um, you know, we, gosh, it, it's an amazing feeling to be in that type of place, and you feel it's like something that your soul needs that you didn't know. Yeah, I can see that. I, I mean, I've felt that many times. I've tried to integrate into smaller groups that I thought that they maybe fulfilled a certain aspect of something I was longing for. But, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm more concerned, as you said, with that taproot with love. And when I would see barriers to that, I I tend to not do well in the tribe because I see it get, um, exclusive. I'm not a real big fan of be of things being exclusive. I think, you know, that to me, as you described America as being beautiful for its diversity, I like that as well. I want to wrap, make my arms bigger, not smaller, you know, to wrap my arms around that. You know, I, my, my father was a Vietnam veteran too. And I grew up with, with a veteran father. And I think other men and girls too, women too, have probably had this experience where they carried that war with them their whole life. And it's sort of, Mm. I don't know. I didn't know my dad as a young man, but I just have to imagine based on things that I experienced with him and things that other people have told me about him, that that war was a critical shift for him when he came home. Yeah he really never did fully fit back in into this world. The way he was before was not the way he was after. And I, I remember even his language and it haunts my mind even because I, some of those lessons weren't really for me, but you carry the words of your parents around with you, you know, and their lessons in you sometimes, even if they're not part of really who you are. And I, there's things that I, I saw him, the way he would behave in certain situations that some of the heavy handedness and the um, aggression, Mm -hmm. a lot of that I know was just a battle mentality. He carried a us versus them battle mentality into just about everything he did. But one thing I will say, and I appreciate this even more about him now, was his directness. And you touched on that. Like he would not. um, There was no extra. I mean, if he was when it when he was in that mode, 
what was coming out was true. And I didn't have to doubt that. Yeah. You know, and it was even if sometimes it was ugly, it was pure. And I could appreciate that, you know, and, and now I can appreciate it even more because I sometimes would rather something pure, even if yeah. it's not soft, you know. I th- I think that's the, uh, what is it, like the ghosting phenomenon that our generation is known for now, you know, where people, it's like they don't tell you no, they just ghost you. And it's, yeah, uh, it's, right. it's a Hollywood no. It's like the way they say no in Hollywood. They just don't respond. I didn't know that. I like like that. A Hollywood no. (laughs) Yeah. And so I was like, that, I miss the military because they would just say, no, no, we don't want to do that. Yeah. And it's done. It's done. Okay, great. And I have so much more respect for that. You know, because like the, this constant tiptoeing over people's feelings, um, in truth, people would much rather have directness, I think. And just at least knowing where they stand because, yeah, the people who ghost, I don't think they want to be ghosted. You know, right. so it's do unto others type of thing. The uh, But I loved the, the culture, you know, in the military. And um, it's, but there is, there is, I think, that struggle, like, for a lot of veterans coming home. We think about the veteran experience and what they're personally going through. What's not often thought about is the families. And, you know, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. Uh, World War II, Korea, and then Vietnam, the beginning of Vietnam, the end of World War II. Yeah, and so he was a big reason why I joined. Well, he came back with a lot of issues as well, and that affected, you know, his kids and then the kids' kids. There's a Mm -hmm. blast radius. Mm -hmm. And so it really does – the war shapes us even if we didn't go. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, one of my guests I talked to several episodes back, he's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And so he was a child. He was five years old during the Vietnam War. And it was so fascinating talking to him because he started talking about the Tet Offensive and how all the evacuation preparations they would have to do in the middle of the night and drills and just the terror of it all. And I'm just in my mind as he's telling me this, I'm going, I remember my dad telling me about being at Quezon and the foxhole and how bad it was. Oh, and I'm going, this is such a juxtaposition. I mean, here's this child. I'm hearing this story about how this war affected a citizen of Vietnam. Yeah. And then I'm hearing my dad. I remember my dad's stories. And now we're in this sort of node moment where I'm talking to this man. And we got to this subject, the subject of trauma. And, he, and we, we really started thinking about how trauma is migratory. I mean, so much of it in his life, you know, he was talking about how his father was a refugee from China, you know, when the communists take over. And so his father was actually a Chinese uh, child who was brought into Vietnam. And so it's like, wow, this migrated from one war to another to another and now he's in america you see what i mean it's like Mm -hmm. he wasn't in the war but yet the war is affecting his life it's exactly what you're talking about it just sort of these ripple effects that go out i actually think my dad probably as he got older probably knew that he had two different versions of himself he would talk in a way like it was like he had a great pride in in being a marine um and a great patriotism in that regard but then at the same time it almost seemed to get tempered with a lot of remorse and regret for 
war in general. It was just sort yeah. of a it was like he he loved what he had learned and became, but at the same time he hated it that that he yes. even had to be that in the first place. It was just this strange I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. That is, it is, and it's like the um it's actually talking about this the same thing like with my wife last night. I mean, it's like this you know, you have these young men who were called to war. I mean, so many of them want to experience combat. Like right now, like the guys entering our military, they want to deploy. Mm. They want to go see it. They want to go experience it. And after they've experienced it, they might walk with a little bit more pride. They might, you know, that box is somehow checked. But then the consequences of that experience hit. Yeah. And what had to be done. And then you start, when the enemy goes from being a Taliban fighter to a father, a son, a brother, right. a person, and you start going through that revelation, then it's not just a, a badass thing to do. It's, uh, oh, yeah, I took him out. Like, no, you, you killed the guy. And right, it's like right. the um, – and you might have done what you had to do, but there's still a consequence. And yeah. uh, processing all of that, it, it's just heavy. And um, so there, there's this weird relationship we have to war, and mm. but at the same time missing, missing it, missing wanting to go back. It's so the, weird. The camaraderie and the love of the, the country, yeah, and, the, and the, the, also the experience. I mean, there's nothing. I haven't experienced the high greater than combat. You know, it is exhilarating. It is fun until somebody gets hurt. Mm. It is just thrilling. Your heart races that. in an incredible way, and you can't find. That's why you have so many veterans coming home, you know, doing more and more dangerous things. You know, the typical stories of veterans getting motorcycles when they get home, and then getting into wreck because they were chasing that high. You know, trying to drive faster and faster, trying to hit that feeling. And um, I experienced it too. I mean, because I was going out on one to two operations a week. And with the guys. And so getting shot at regularly, you know, going through that and you get that ampness, you know, that you experience. But it's also um, I was never more present than when I was in combat. You know, normally my mind is racing to the future and to the past mm. all the time. And when I was in there was this one beautiful moment we had to run across it. We were looking for the enemy in the middle of a cornfield. And that was kind of scary because it's not going to be shooting from a distance. You're just going to be coming upon them and they'll be there in the middle of a cornfield. So, you know, uh, I was like, yeah. well, this is bad. We searched for them, did not find them, but then they started ambushing us from a mountaintop. And so we reengaged and called for fire, did all this, the, the usual stuff. Had an RPG land uh, next to me on the other side of a rock. And about just like seven, eight feet away, blast kind of rained down on me. Wow. And, um, you know, so then we kept moving kept fighting eventually we had to run across a creek so i ran across the creek you know i'm bullets are flying and you the bullets sound like a kid's toy when they pass by your ears like a zip, zip, zip. Mm -hmm. and so i knew it was like oh man they they have us in the sideline and so um wow. i got to a, a fighting position 
and got to the other side of the creek while there was this little waterfall, just a little bitty waterfall. And there's bombs and bullets flying everywhere. And I look over past um, my assistant. Chaplains have chaplain assistants. Past my assistant, uh, there is some butterflies flying near that little waterfall. Wow. And I was like, in this moment, (laughs) all this craziness, I felt so still. I felt so at peace and so present. I was 100% fully there <laughs> with the butterflies. It sounds kind yeah, of bad, no, but, I, I, but, no, I, I'm I, with you. I feel you. I, yeah. I, I was just like, and I was so taken by the reality that those butterflies and that waterfall existed in that environment, in that moment at the same time, and they didn't stop flying. Hmm. I was so taken aback by that they were still flying. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to explain. I don't know. Oh if man, no, the, it's it's. I'm but, with you. I'm actually. Was, you can probably tell by my my whole body language just shifted. <laughs> like I'm drawn into this because to me, I'm fascinated that's, that's the that, that of it. It's yeah, like that it the, got that to that state though. Like that. There's so many. This is a, something uh, I talk about a lot. That that's. That oneness, you know, that separ. I mean, it almost seems like you were entering into that space of oneness in that moment where time yes. is sort of obsolete. There's it no, was. there's no future or past. You're just there with the thing to where it almost like you sort of begin to end, even like you're with the thing. Yes, I am fascinated and, and that war and, vi- and that, that brought that so, to you. I recorded it. And wow. I, I, I was like, when I rewatched it, I was like. I thought I recorded it for so much longer really? because the moment for me was so long and Man. in my mind's die, I experienced it differently than I actually had experienced it. Um, but interesting, when man. I came back uh, to the, the, the cop, which is like an outpost, we, it was called the cop fortress. It was okay. an old Afghan fortress made with mud walls, and it mm. looked like a little castle even. Really? And I got onto one of the walls, and the rain had washed over the valley. Beautiful valley, mountainous, beautiful valley. And uh, the rain had passed over. It was such a fun day. Nobody got hurt. And all this craziness happened. And then uh, so I went up to the top of that fortress wall, and I looked over the valley, and there was a double rainbow over that. I'm wow. not making any of this up. A double oh rainbow God. over the valley. And I was just in cloud nine. It was just an experience that I, I can't. I was just in another place. And I was just felt so alive. And I felt so at peace. And from everything I had just experienced, and so I recorded myself talking about it, because I was like, man, i just trying to put it into words. And then I was like, it was one of the only videos I ever deleted. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You deleted it. Does it exist still? No. Anywhere? No. Wow. Because huh. I didn't know if it would make sense. And I didn't even know if I wanted to share it. What year was this? Uh, 2010. Man, I would give anything to be able to see that. 
<laughs> and it's I like mean, I, have that's... The, I have the footage and I have all of that stuff, but like the to hear what you said in that moment, that would be a really interesting thing. I mean, just yeah. to hear you describe it now. I mean, it's elation is what it sounds like. It's like yeah. oneness and elation, like something spiritual. I mean, just it was. And you it, know, it's like it's so. We we think of war as just this awful thing, but it's a human experience like anything else. And like there's there's a dy- it's the greatest highs and the greatest lows uh, wrapped up in a, a short violent event. And it's weird. It's like we have a very strange relationship to war. And, and so that's why it's so confusing. And so, so many veterans coming home, they're confused by this, too. You feel crazy for wanting to go back into that experience. You feel crazy for, you know, because like whenever you tell, you know, other people about it, they're just like, oh, man. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's, it's you got to get it. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, yeah. So that's that's just the kind of stuff. I mean, like that's, uh, um, you know, I, my second film was about a group of combat yeah. veterans. I'm in post production on it now, but it's uh, about guys from SEAL Team Six, Delta Force, Special Forces, Army Rangers competing in the Baja 1000, which is the most dangerous off road race in the world. You know, you're guaranteed to get into a wreck. You're 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 gonna have. It's gonna be rough. And yeah. as one of the Delta Force guys said, and this guy captured Saddam Hussein, he said this was by far the most difficult thing he'd ever done. Wow. This race. So it's extreme. Wow. Um, but why, why it's like, how do you come home from all those combat experiences? A lot of the guys will start going back into these kind of adventurous things. And for me, that's what I need too. It's like trying to recapture some of that experience, but also that brotherhood, that fellowship, um, you know, that getting back into that is amazing. So I did that film. And then uh, recently we're starting to work on our season two episodes. I'm talking with a friend about skydiving. Oh, and, really? Uh, and that's He was actually with me in Afghanistan. He was a medic. Uh, that is how he has found kind of that reconnection to that elation. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm on a journey to to try to figure out how to get back to that valley. I think. Yeah, it's, it's man. Part that's, of this is for me. And, and listening to you describe all of that, my my imagination is just painting all of this, you know. And it sounds like a mind palace. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, <laughs> you know, but it does. It sounds like a mind palace and a place that you can that's inside of you now. You know, mm-hmm. that you can probably go to if you want to, you know, yeah. and, and be there. And that's kind of a beautiful thing. You know, I, I have something I've called the cabin for many years and I've talked about it on the show before, but it is like my mind palace. And I mm-hmm. I didn't realize it until years ago that I had been building it for a long time. And so I, as I once I realized I'd been building it, I started putting little doors inside of it. And when I open those doors, they lead to other places. And yeah. You know, your cornfield, valley, waterfall, that whole butterfly scenario sounds like one of those places like you could go there and just, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Get into that space because, I mean, that that sounds beautiful. I mean, it is tragic in a way that it has that it came from that moment. But I get it. Like, I, I understand this because I. 
I'm kind of an emergency minded individual. And my wife mm-hmm. has said this for years. She said, like, when there's crisis, you like get calm and clean and you know what yes. to do. And I said, yeah, I, I don't think about the future or the past. I just what's happening right now, what's in front of me. And I seem to like it actually calms me down. I don't feel mm-hmm. wrecked and stressed. Yes. But, people could be freaking out around me and I don't know why that is. I think it has something to do with my father. I really do. I think he probably, it's some of that, but so I kind of on some small scale, I understand what you're describing. It's like something about surviving or or, or a survival mode uh, triggers that inside a clean moment. I don't know what it is, though. I don't know how that. I, it's like, and it, I'm, I'm going to circle around it further. I mean, it's like it's something I keep kind of going back to. And it's like uh, when I was looking at my portfolio as it seems to be developing, like uh, when I got back, uh, my father-in-law does gator hunting. And so I'd go out gator hunting and, of course, just love doing the photography and yeah, all that experience. But uh, then off extreme off-road racing. And then here recently, um, you know, in the middle of the disaster, so I filmed all through Hurricane Delta and like filming in the the first thing that I said or the first thought that hit me when I was in the middle of that hurricane and it was pushing me around was I miss combat. Mm, really? Interesting. And I was like, how jacked up am I? <laughs> like, like I was like, oh, something's not right. But it, it hit and I was I was being it, it just popped in my head. It was. Uh, just a a pop up thought. You're like, man, I missed combat, and I was like, oh, wait a second. Then I caught it, and I was like, wait a second, what's going wow. on with that? But the what I see in the portfolio developing is just it always does seem to kind of be um, that type of content that is a little bit, you know, uh, a bit more extreme. You know, so war, off road racing. All this kind of stuff, those those types of things interest me, which is, um, you know, if you sit and talk with me, it's not my personality. Right. Uh, I'm a guy who likes to play chess and D&D and sit in a coffee shop and drink coffee and talk. And um, I'm not I don't have like, you know, the big old pickup truck with the big old tires. Extreme, you know, right, right, right. right. Not an extreme personality. <laughs> But but the content in it, oh, I think a lot of it is just born out of those experiences and this relationship to uh, danger and the uh, the the feeling it creates. Hmm, you know, it's interesting. Um, it, it is, and it's like I don't know if it's healthy or not. I don't know. I, I saw that. I saw that with my dad. I really did. I yeah. never understood it until I got older. Mm-hmm. And and it started to make more sense to me, but I I saw him put himself in dangerous situations over and again, you know, situations where other people would um, completely try to would really try to get out of them. Dad would go yeah. into them like, yeah, uh, and probably for him it probably wasn't a healthy way. I mean, I will yeah. say that. I mean, there were times when I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was clean. But it was dangerous, and but he but he did. I don't think he ever understood like that he had other people in tow with him. That was kind of yes. there were other people in his wake, and that was the thing oh. that I that terrified me the most as a young person. I was like, I get, I started to understand his relationship to it, but I was in his wake, and so yeah. you know my little 
feeble vessel wasn't prepared for what he was completely comfortable with. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's something that I've talked a lot with my wife about too. It's like, I see my inclinations and what gets my brain going, what I'm really interested in, but there's, uh, if things go south, there's consequences to this. Yeah. And, um, you know, I got a three year old son and a seven year old daughter. And so it's like trying to figure out how to balance that and find safety in the midst of extreme yeah. things. Yeah. So that way it's like I'm still getting to do what I'm passionate about, but I'm not going to get straight up killed. Right. And, right. Uh, yeah. I get that. But well, I like, mean, I you're know. kind of bringing that home with what you're doing, though. I mean, right. I mean, in a way, I mean, you're wow. going I and mean, it may not be extreme action um, situations, but I mean, going into into these situations that you're going to film. I mean, you are yeah. exposed to hard situations. It has to be bringing you into that to some degree. Even when you're sitting with people doing your videos for a do good, you mm-hmm. know, I'm sure that it brings you into a present moment because you're in their pain sometimes. Yeah, and it's like, well, we're, the next episode is going to have the rescue operations we we're doing after oh, Delta, okay. and that was a lot of fun. And it's it it wasn't like uh, wasn't as dangerous as like combat. You know, yeah. but it was uh, still dangerous, and the so filming that stuff was interesting and fun. It still kind of hits that twinge, yeah, uh, sure. feeling. But the um, yeah, it's like uh, this a subject that I'm very interested in, and I think what I, when I was thinking about it, it's like you know, whenever it comes to anything that is kind of like slightly dangerous, then I am more interested as a subject matter. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, that sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, that's, that's, that's not good. So it, it is it is an interesting thing. Like the once you've been, I call it, baptized by fire, yeah. you miss the fire. And um, I think that, uh, you know, definitely worth exploring, you know. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm not that. the only veteran going through it. And it's right. – but, well, the way you've talked about it, even this conversation, I mean, if a veteran heard it, I imagine you're going to have more than not will go, oh, I understand this. I've had these moments, yeah. you know, and, and it is a moment of peace that can be captured, you know, and it, it, it's that little shoot growing off that hibiscus, you know, it it's is. that it's the it's the beauty in the cracks. It's like, yeah, that's a busted thing, but there's something growing inside of there and I don't know. I mean, I hear you tell that whole scenario where you're, you know you're in this combat situation, and the way you described the sound of the bullets, but in the crack, in that in that moment, there's these beautiful things that got heightened, and and you almost like to me, it's like you got to see them, really see them. Yeah, and and not just um, you can you know I can walk outside every day and go, oh, there's a pretty flower, there's a butterfly, but to sit with it long enough to be present with it takes a great effort. I mean, you have to like practice that kind of thing and combat provided like this sort of, um, instant connection. Yeah. Instant connection, you know, to that moment. That's a beautiful, I don't know that that's going to, I'm going to think about that a lot. (laughs) I think that's really fascinating. You know, I had, um, the, like this, this relationship with veterans in danger. I mean, like it's, I I know journalists go through it and, Mm. I was friends with um, this guy named James Foley. He actually was co-located with me over at Cop Monte when we were in Afghanistan. And both of us were filming combat. 
And so we were talking about it and, you know, got connected on Facebook and stayed connected, you know. Um, so just over time, you know, I'd shoot him messages and we started talking about trying to do a TV show together with Discovery Channel. You know, basically yeah. going on to combat operations, filming it, putting the shows together and then releasing it because we both just love telling those types of stories. And then uh, he wound up getting captured in Libya um, while covering stories, but escaped and uh so i checked back in with him and it's like we weren't like super close friends we weren't like checking in every single day or anything yeah but we just had relationship. Oh, things yeah. going oh he got kidnapped whoa yeah you know how you doing now and uh then he wound up getting picked up later in syria you know by isis and he was one of the first people to be beheaded wow man and oh my gosh That's... The, the footage that they used the photo that they used was a photo that I took of him when I was in Afghanistan. Wow. Uh, and so when I I saw that, you know, I I was actually stationed in Germany at the time. I was on a retreat and I threw up and I was just crying. You know, just so brokenhearted. Um and it, it really got me thinking about you know he kept rolling the dice on this and we talk about that in the soldiers as well in the military it's like you keep going for these operations and going for the operations every time you're rolling the dice mm. and, and you never know when it's going to come up but you know if you keep rolling the dice eventually it's going to come up mm-hmm. it's going to and it hits with your friends it hits with the people around you eventually it's going to be you and i know that and I relate with this is there's no judgment on him, but he kept rolling the dice because of that chip, yeah. because of that thing mm-hmm. that chasing that, that feeling. And, um, it's so sad because he really legitimately was just a kind hearted, really good guy and wouldn't hurt anybody. Didn't want to hurt anybody. Wasn't doing anything bad. Just trying to tell the truth. Yeah. But it's like you dance around this danger, and eventually you come up short. And it's um, so it's just heartbreaking. But that's what's happening with a lot of our veterans. You know, they'll they immediately go out. Younger guys will immediately go out, get a motorcycle, find an extreme thing, and then they push it too far. And one of our guys, he actually got the second longest sniper shot in history. Mm, um, really, really great guy. But when he got home got a motorcycle he was stationed in italy at the time and they got t-boned and um and it's like but we have story after story that happens a lot it's like we have mm-hmm. to tell our guys please don't buy a bike please don't just don't do that because they'll push it too fast and push it too fast uh, because they had spent a year feeling this danger and so they're trying to hit that feeling and then it just goes over yeah, and so it's like even so even with myself I mean, after going through those experiences and watching what's happened to friends, it's like I am conscious of it. You yeah. know, it's a it doesn't delete the feeling and the desire. So it's so yeah. interesting that that I mean how you just never know what when it's going to come. I would imagine I'm, I'm listening to you talk about this and I'm thinking about a friend of mine. Uh, we graduated together and he was in Marine Corps Force Recon and I remember. When I first started getting letters from him, uh, it was he was very much himself, the guy I knew, you know, in high school. And then each letter, almost like successively, just started getting 
he was just changing. I mean, they were getting darker, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, years later, I mean, you know, this is 25 years ago, you know, and then now he's found that peace, that peaceful moment, and he lives a completely different life that's so far removed from that world. But when he talks about it, he said, you know, it's exactly what you're describing. It's like he said, I would find these moments of peace. But for him, it was like... uh it was so dark, I guess, the way, and he, he, I don't want to talk about that, I guess, the details, but it was just so mm-hmm. dark, the things that he had to be involved with, yeah. that it, it was too much. Like, he just couldn't, he said he couldn't even um, really look to those things anymore. He just can't go there. It's just so, yeah. it's like on him. Like, the way he said, it's like he can't wash it off of himself, if yeah. that makes any sense. So, he lives like this sort of rebounded life, almost like a completely different life now and it's like almost like being an alcoholic i suppose it's the best way i can describe it like he's like i can't go there you know some people can go have a drink i can't have a drink of that yeah i can't entertain this action i can't entertain these thoughts i can't because it's uh it was too dark does that does that make some sense yeah Yeah, absolutely and it's like the it's it's kind of a weird relationship like after you leave uh you've got some guys that it'll be the only thing they talk about, they, yeah. they the, everything on their vehicle is their military history. Right. <laughs> it becomes, right. They're living their life in that past chapter. Yeah. And for me, it's, I don't want to repress it, deny it, or push it away. It's like I wanted to process it. Yeah. I right. wanted it to process sense. and kind of get, that's what No Greater Love in large part was too, is me processing what I'd been through. And so that way I can then move forward, move on. But and look at look at it as just a chapter in a bigger book. You know, it's not I'm not Justin Roberts, you know, former army chaplain. That's that was part of what I've done. Yes. But it's my life is moving on and I'm Justin Roberts filmmaker now. Yeah. And and hopefully years down the road, I'll be Justin Roberts beachgoer or something yeah know? what's it's your just, totem pole of your life i mean you got a yeah. face carved somewhere in there and you just keep carving them as you go i mean but you yeah. don't but it's, it's the staff you know that you carry you don't look down on that and go oh that's not me that's not a part of me you know it's a part of you you know but it's okay to keep yeah. carving new faces along the way with it. yeah yeah it's like totally so, that. so that way it's like you can move forward with it as it not deleting that chapter or repressing it because repressing stuff um, it pops back up and it comes and it's like the, and if we try to completely repress it, then it's like, ah, we're missing an opportunity, uh, you know, for some growth. And so for me, it's like, I, I did feel like that desire to disconnect completely. Uh, in some ways I did, I think in some ways, like, uh, once I was done with no greater love, that's when I, the depression really hit me. Really? Mm-hmm. And so it was because what do I do now? Oh, you know, okay, where's yeah. my life? And so, uh, but also it's like, I just needed to step away from the military stuff. And so I still have a photo book. I got to get finished. Um, I'm going to just donate it to charities, but um, organizing it, getting all, all that material. I had trouble going back to it. And it was just like, cause it would spark up stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, I've, that's at least has been my journey is just trying to make peace with it. It was a chapter. It was a good chapter. It was amazing moments, amazing people that I was connected with, and um, and then move on. 
you know, yeah. move forward. So yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah. So that's, Man, that's that's all beautiful, actually. I mean, I'm so glad that you talked about all of this. I really am. I, I didn't really know exactly where our conversation would go. And I just love everything that poured out. I really think it's helpful. I mean, it's helpful for me, even as not being a combat veteran, but just for anybody who's dealing with anything traumatic that was a huge part of their life, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, don't uh, I see people who walk away from their trauma and just shut the door on it. I mean, what you just described about how unhealthy that can be, just shut the door, put it in a box, shove it away. Um, it's still in that box somewhere, shoved away. It still exists, you know, yeah. and I think utilizing it, transmuting it, that's something I'm really a big fan of, is how do you take one thing, the alchemy of the whole thing, yes. how do you turn it into something else, you know? Yeah. And that's what yeah, you, you're, like you're the, doing, you know? Well, and it's like the... Um, I think both of us too. It's like the, from our past experiences, you know, we've gotten to a place where, you know, the, uh, the wound transforms into something that inspires you to go and do good, inspires yeah. you to try to go help people to, to, to do something out of all of that. And so the, um, you know, if it wasn't for my childhood, I probably wouldn't have become a chaplain. And if it wasn't for my experiences in war, I probably wouldn't have become a filmmaker and doing what I'm currently doing now. Right. <laughs> and so it's weird from trauma to, to yeah, yeah, it's trying I to help people and, and yeah. do good. Yeah. And so it's like the, uh, and that's why it's like, you know, my co-host, he's a former combat medic. I mean, like everything yeah. that he went through, he now just wants to do good, help people, love people, and um, tell good stories. And so. It's it's been an interesting journey. I mean, like kind of getting to this place, but I think it's common for people who have been through those tough tough roads. It, it kind of usually gets you if you ha if you process it in a healthy way. It'll usually become the thing that empowers you to go do that that thing. Yeah, that you're supposed to go do. So. Oh. I was telling my son, we were talking about this. My son's got some traumatic things that he's been working through for many years now. And there's certain things that um, when he's trying to work through them and then the, the th he's so young that the thing that has caused the pain kind of can come back up. Yeah. You know, he hasn't had an opportunity to sort of put it in the past, so to speak, fully. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were talking one day, I said, you know what, what we don't realize sometimes, and this is one of the points of this show is to get people to be kinder to each other. Mm -hmm. Because we don't know that somebody's working on something, you know, and the best way I described it is like you, you're trying you're trying to build a, a path for yourself, you know, and you're you're out there pouring your concrete and you're smoothing it out and you're building a path to your door of your home, your safe space. But somebody that's going to come walk up to your door doesn't know that that's wet com concrete. Yeah. And so they just kind of walk right through your path and leave their footprints in it. Yeah. You know, there's just no yeah. awareness that you're, you're working on something, you know, and it's sad because we almost have to raise flags over ourselves and say, Hey, I've got some wounds. Um, I'm working on something. Please be kind to me. <laughs> like, yes. Just try to be kind to me. That's all a I'm asking of, for. A little bit of grace. Yeah, just some. And so I think we're that's one of the things that concerns me and I'm hoping to see a shift is that we all just sort of cool out and just be a little kinder to each other because and in listening to your story, and I'm sure that story repeats over and again for so many people, 
you know, you're smoothing your concrete. You're working on your stuff. You're still doing it. I'm still doing it. We're yeah. all doing it. Yeah. It's still kind of wet, though, you know? So, yeah. Well, it's like, the, you know, I and, and I have to like my my way of process a thing is usually like kind of shutting down, kind of closing in. Mm. And, and I can come across as offstandish or uh, antisocial. You know, if you see people there, who see yeah. me, oh gosh, like when I got back after No Greater Love, and I was doing all these movie screenings, and people would see me for an hour and a half, you know, in the film, and then afterwards they were like, I know this guy, and then the crowd would form to come talk to me. Yeah, and I'm like, whoa, I it's like I I'm I'm still dealing with <laughs> being in the middle of a crowd. You know, I, I can stand you. in front of people and talk. But the second that I'm in the crowd and then they're coming at me is really um, uh, sets sets me off. It just like it, it feels like dangerous situation. Yeah. I need to back up. I need to kind of move out. And uh, um, so I would get quiet and I hope it didn't seem like I was being a jerk, but it really just kind of threw me off. And uh, so – I would try to get out of that environment as quick as I could. And uh, sometimes I was able to kind of control it. Okay, I'm going to be super friendly. I'm grateful that they're there. Yeah, I'm just happy. But um, people don't know what's going on on the inside. God, man. I mean, again, not a combat veteran, but I relate to that 100%. (laughs) <laughs> I, I've talked about this on this show so many times. I, for years, suffered with like a type of social anxiety that was really debilitating. I mean, I had to work through it because I would I went back and analyzed my behavior. And there are people that I know think that I don't want to be around them or that I don't like mm-hmm. doing fun things or that there's all these scenarios where other people are totally fine. And I just know that I am uncomfortable. I'm willing to say that out loud now, though, and go, hey, look, that situation makes me uncomfortable. I can probably push through it, but I'm just I I need you to know I'm dealing with something in the past. I would hide it. And so it Mm -hmm. it came off as just me maneuvering and nobody knew that I was just trying to protect myself from myself, basically. I mean, these social situations were it was. I don't know. It was like a primal fear. I mean, it would truly overwhelm me. And so I would find excuses to uh, vacate early or not get caught up in certain situations or always had like a plan or I would even sabotage my ability to go to something, Yeah, you know, because of it. And that's hard. That's hard for people to understand. So, yeah, nobody knows what everybody's carrying around. And we're just going, no, come on. It'll be fun. Come meet this person. And they don't realize that you're in mortal. Like, it's really triggering you. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, like my, my wife's an extrovert. And so the, uh, but she's gotten really good at just kind of, uh, accepting and knowing that we operate in two very different ways. My wife too. (laughs) She knows. I have like an emotional bank account and, if I'm doing something like if I uh, on a Friday night, if I'm going to a party, I'm not going to go to a party on a Saturday or Sunday. That emotional bank account's drawn. You I know, did it. And then to that's recharge. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like I get I it. Pour in, and then oh, uh, yeah. then I'll be able to do a withdrawal later. That's Whereas it. for her. That is putting you know money in the emotional bank account. Going to the party adds See, to that's it. so fascinating. I get this. Yeah. Golly, man. I, that's such an interesting intersection. 
I don't know where that comes from for me, but I definitely get it. I mean, I have a, I have a limit. It's like a battery, as you described, and that's kind of the way I feel about it. It's like, yeah. look, I can go, like, I'm during the holidays. That's exactly how I am. I'm like, I can go to this, but I can't go to everything because I cannot recharge fast enough. No. I'll be completely like, spent. It, for me, like, when I came back, it was worse. Really? You know, it was just uh, more extreme. And, mm. um, you know, uh I was told it's like I was more fun before I deployed. Mm. And I was like, oh, man, I'm still fun. You know, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm much more serious. And, uh, you know, there was a personality shift. And yeah. so, um, but it also seemed like they, the I had less of an emotional, uh, less emotional currency for those events. Yeah. Those type of social events. And so, I, it's, yeah, it, you know, I'm working on it, though. It's like I have been getting better. And I yeah. am trying to go out more, but it's always an, an exercise. You know, it's mm-hmm. always, you know, draining. I yeah. understand this. I mean, I kind of relate that to even this podcast. See, like, I I knew what I wanted to do, and I had a certain set of skills. And I was like, well, and I do enjoy socializing, but I enjoy intimate socialization like this versus just big groups. And mm-hmm. so knowing those things about myself, the podcast platform seemed to fit really nicely because I wasn't being watched by a camera, you know, yep. and it was just a human being across from me, one person yep. typically. And I could engage that way. I can invest my heart fully with like you or any other guest. And then I can take a break and recharge, you know, because yeah. we can go places really deep and I yeah. can think about them for days. To me, that is socialization. But for mm-hmm. other people, that's not. They they there. It's parties and groups and events and mixers. Yeah. And I'm like, look, it. It's not that I'm not fun. Maybe I'm not fun. I just, to me, this fulfills that need, and yeah. I'm okay with that. That's just well, the animal. I, I don't I like am, shallow know? conversations either. I mean, it's like the, uh, um, those those are a little bit harder for me to entertain, and it's mm. not. Not that I'm not capable of doing it. I'll do it sometimes to be polite. Uh, but it's, I don't care. I'm just like, I don't have a whole lot of time and, and you know, so I'll, I'll give, I'll choose where I put my time. And so if it's going to be talking about a sport that I don't really care for, then, uh, which is most, then I'm going to do something else. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just, I don't, I'm not a football guy. I mean, like Me either, I, yeah. <laughs> I'll entertain it for a bit, but then I'm, I'm off to, to go do something else. Um, because there's somebody smarter and better on that subject that you could probably talk to, you know? And that's right. That's absolutely yeah. right. It's like, that's, I, I feel the same way. I'm like, look, I, I've, I'm learning to be cleaner, I guess, and tell people, look, I'm just not interested in that. And that's just, it's okay. Yeah. It's cool that it's for you. It's just not for me. I used to be very bad at that though. I, I was terrible at it. I, I would create way more anxiety in myself than I needed, uh, pleasing people and just going mm-hmm. along, going with the flow. And I just realized that's just so unhealthy for me, yeah. the way I'm wired. I don't know why I'm wired the way I'm wired, but being honest about it has been yeah. infinitely better. Um, and most people respect it. Most. The only time it comes up for me is in professional situations. Mm-hmm. You know, where I have to take a, a meeting um, that maybe has more people than I'm comfortable with in it. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that that's going to trigger me, so I have to prepare a little more than I would if it was just a smaller group. It's just those kinds of things, and it's just being aware. It's like, 
walking with a cane if because you have a bum knee you <laughs> yeah. know that's the way i feel yeah. about it it's like hey we that's make adjustments. A, a good analogy you know it's like walking with a cane i mean it's like the uh um you know it is going to be a little bit different but the you know what's weird though is i think there's more people out there like us and there's uh but it's constantly the uh the extroverts have the microphone you know yeah but it, what's weird is like when i'm speaking in front of a crowd i'm just fine love speaking yeah. in front of a crowd um and i'm on camera a lot yeah and so for this there's this weird relationship to it yeah you know that i am in front of crowds i'm in front of people i'm engaging people it's just party situations or when they're kind of coming at me then it's just yeah. like it's a bit much and that- uh I I'm that way in lines, you know. I was I was in the military, I was in the army, but I was it was peacetime, no combat, you know. And I I know this is the strangest thing, but when I and it's a, so lame compared to combat trauma. But to this day, I still can't stand a line, and I didn't have that before I was in the military. <laughs> I know yeah. that. I mean, when I got home, I had line. This is the dumbest thing, but it was like line trauma i mean my wife if my kids are like hey let's go to burger king Mm -hmm. i mean they know if i drive by if i'm even getting close and there's like five cars in the line i just won't get in the line i'd rather just not even go it's it's not that i'm impatient either i'm super patient i just there's something about standing in a line that just was left in me from the military and you know what I mean. I mean, yeah, it's like yeah. a, it's, like, it's a, it's I, a, I, this very morning I was standing in line for coffee and then I, I saw that the line was a little bit longer than I wanted. So I was like, I'll get it later. I'm out. Yeah. I'm that's out. me. I do yeah, the same like, thing. I and I don't, and I'm not mad about it. I don't go, Oh, this line's so long. I just go, yeah. I don't have to do this. No, you know, I'm over it. I'm I don't need the coffee. Out. I don't need the donut, whatever it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, I just hated waiting in line in the military. I just, something about the culture of hurry up and wait. I was just like, man, just the amount of waiting that I yeah, felt like life, I was your doing. Your life is slipping away every moment. And yeah, it's like yeah. I, I was like, how long have I been in this line? Like, what I just, did is, I, I uh, for the stuff I had to do, I got a book, and mm. I kept the book in my pocket. And then the second I, because I hate my time being wasted, and uh, uh, so I was like, well, I'll start reading. And yeah. I went through so uh, waiting on the army. I, I read so many freaking books. <laughs> I wish I'd have done that. I think I was too young. I wasn't a big reader like I am no. now. And I was like, you know, seventeen. Yeah. You know, right out of high school, and I'm like, I was, I was just like, you know, what? I, didn't my, I didn't know what to do with my mind. You know, I was like in my, I was about twenty, twenty-two, I think, when I, I became enlisted. Yeah. Uh, like twenty, twenty-two, somewhere around there, and then. Um, uh, that's when I was really kind of entering into a reading phase yeah. where I was diving into it. So I was like, well, hey. I always had a, a book in my pocket. The army was always going to make me wait on something. It's absolutely true. When I tell <laughs> people that I'm like, you know, it's a real thing. I mean, the, the hurry up and wait joke is not a joke. That's a real no. thing. And no, yeah. nobody's going to tell you it's kind of like being in jail. I mean, it's like, yeah, you just don't have a concept of time anymore. And oh. you know, you when you're something's just, gonna happen, you're just waiting on somebody to tell you what to do and yeah, just ushered over here, ushered over there and Right. Especially at first. I mean, it was definitely mm-hmm. like that first. Yeah. I mean, this has been so great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, man. Yeah, I, I really dig I really appreciate you uh for having me on here and Oh, this is great. It's it was fun. Yeah. 
I would do is one thing, and hopefully this will help uh, you. I know you have to reach a certain amount of subscribers mm-hmm. to monetize yes. your channel, and y'all been pushing that. I mean, what's the what's mm-hmm. the amount that you're trying to hit? Oh gosh, it's like I know we need to have a thousand subscribers on YouTube, um, and so we have a ways to go there. I mean, it's a brand new channel, so we just yeah. got started. So we're trying to get that up. And uh, on Facebook, I think it's four thousand followers. Yeah. Okay. So, we're, and what we would like to do is monetize both, push right. the content out on both, and then same same process. What we're doing is we partnered with the local United Way of Southwest Louisiana, okay. and the funds go straight from the platform to them. Oh, that's great! So that way, the money then goes out to the individuals or charities that we're supporting. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I saw y'all pushing that on some of your pages, and I thought, you know, that's I get that. I mean, I. Uh, Early on, I even just trying to get your uh, your handle for your page to be mm-hmm. the right thing. I mean, you have to have a certain yeah. number of things, and it's difficult to do. I mean, it is. Start it's not difficult for negative stuff, but for positive, stuff, <laughs> yeah. it's really difficult. It's it's slow motion. Yeah, it's like a, if I I knew if I posted out like a negative attacking thing, it would immediately spread like wildfire. Oh yeah, it's absolutely. That's that's absolutely yeah. how it is, and it's just. I try not to let that jade me. I mean, I won't lie. I'm, it would be a dishonest of me to say that I don't ever have little moments of feeling a little jaded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I can get out of that and get back on it. You know, sometimes I, I just say, hey, I'm doing this for me. That's one. Some days I just wake up and say, I'm doing, I'm doing it for me today. And mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully it's good for somebody else, too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like the uh, you can entertain a thousand people with a lie or gossip. And. Yeah. You can maybe enter, heal one person with the truth. I'm happy. I know it. I'm hey there, Good News listener. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed producing it. Now, it's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment, where I turn my interviewer role over to the Good News Fishbowl. Longtime listeners know that the Fishbowl contains over 400 unique questions, many seated by you, the listeners. Did you know that you could submit unique questions to the Fishbowl? That's right. Just call the Good News Hotline at 802-459-1668 to have your question added. You can also visit findthegood.news and send me an email. Now, let's take that dive into the fishbowl. So I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to any of the episodes, but there's a part at the end of the show where I draw out this fishbowl right here. Oh, fantastic. And it's got over 400 questions in it. We're not going to ask 400 questions, though. (laughs) I'm going to draw randomly three questions out of here. Every guest has done this, and I'll ask them to you. So basically, I'm no longer the interviewer. The fishbowl is the interviewer. That's fantastic. All right. So let's see what we got here. Oh, man. I grabbed a fistful of them this time. Okay. Here's the first question. This is a good question. What's the first impression you want to give people? Oh, gosh, that I care. Man, that's a great answer. No hesitation. Yeah, no, it's like the, because I do, and it's like, um, I, you know what I struggle with is uh, um, my face, when I'm thinking, I look serious and grim. Oh, I hear you. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, so actually, literally in college, I had uh, twice on two separate occasions, I had a teacher, uh, two separate teachers, stop class to ask, hey, is everything okay? Yeah. And 
and it was like it was because I was thinking about what they were talking about, and that's the way my face looks. Yeah, <laughs> and, but <laughs> um, but I really do care, and um, and, and I. I don't know. That's just like my relationship to people too. It's like when I'm talking to somebody, um, yeah, I get that. I've got a very serious face. I mean, I love to laugh and smile, but, uh, and when I actually take a picture smiling, my wife says, there's that smile. Cause most <laughs> of them are very serious. I mean, I'm usually have a, uh, the same thing. I mean, I think I'm fairly friendly and jovial and can yeah. have a good time, but I think I come off with uh somber, uh, yes. melancholy like i'm carrying a like a lot of gravity and weight in my heart and i <laughs> i think people i think sometimes my face is the indicator of that and so yeah, yeah. i get it man i get it all right that's a good question i love that you didn't hesitate i mean that was so fast you didn't have to think about that yeah this question is actually very similar uh what is a mistake people often make about you um most often they hear that I was an army chaplain and then they immediately put on a lot of um, uh, concepts on who I am. Really? Yeah. I mean, so it's like they they immediately go, you know, Christian pasture um, type of ideas. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Presuppositions. It, they pre-robe you. They 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 mm-hmm. they, fl- they frock you and all that. Yeah. 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 And it's like, and that's that's not how I am, who I am, or, or what I believe. You know, I, you could talk to a, a hundred different people in the Christian faith, and you're going to get a hundred different concepts on theology. They all believe in Jesus, but you know who he was and how he was is very radically different. Yeah, that's you know, interesting. I believe, I believe in a God of love. I believe yeah. in uh, Jesus who accepted and loved people as his core theology because that's actually what's in the scripture. And so <laughs> the, what I see in the modern church, I don't necessarily always agree with, you know, yeah. and, but I, I believe that I'm here to love God and to love people and I'm trying my best. And yeah, all people, I'm with you. not just some people, all people. On my truck. That's what my front license plate has on it. It just says, love God, love others. And I went to lunch with a buddy of mine last year before the storms, and we were walking out, and we, we were we were parked by each other, and he looked over there, and he pointed at that, and he looked back and goes, if it gets more complicated than that, we need to rethink it. And I was like, hey, Ben, <laughs> man, I mean, that's as simple as I need it. Love God, love others. I can deal yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful answer, man. Good advice to anybody, in my opinion. So this last question is pretty good. I'm curious about this one. What do you think is worth waiting for? Um, I think the right thing. You know, it's there were so many times in my life that I wanted things to happen faster, sooner, or the way I thought that they should. And... When I look back, if they had happened when I wanted them to happen, it would have been wrong. And I would have not gotten to where I am right now. And I really love where I'm at right now. Yeah. You know, so the, you know, I was engaged before I met my wife. And if that relationship had worked out, it wouldn't have been good. And I was so brokenhearted when it didn't work out. But it's like, man, I'm glad that I got to the woman that I'm with. The um, same thing with uh, 
you know, the stuff that's played out. It's like if I had gotten another job when I was in the chaplain corps, I was trying to go to another particular unit in special forces. And I was sent to originally it was going to be like 173rd, like an airborne unit. If I had gone to the SF unit, I would not have made no greater love, which would have completely changed the direct trajectory of my life. And I'm so grateful that I have gone down this road because of it has blessed and helped people. Yeah. It has done what I needed to do. And in truth, uh, I'm, I'm meant to make film. And so I wasn't given what I was wanted. Um, it was worth it going down the road and me waiting for the right thing was worth I it. I love that. that. makes sense. No, it absolutely <laughs> does. I, I think about sometimes, my son and I were talking about this yesterday. He was asking about college, and he's just not sure what he wants to do. He's about to graduate, and he said, I'm just not sure I want to go right now. I feel like I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to just – he's just really debating it, and I – I told him, you know, I said, the best advice I can give you is to be patient with yourself on this Mm -hmm. because you could make a decision and spend a lot of money and get yourself in a a situation that you can't get out of uh, and take a course that may not be the right course for you. Just wait. It's okay. Yeah. Be patient because I told him I was not patient. If I look at all the major deviations I made. Uh, they were impulsive and impatient. You know, granted, th- th- they put me right here in front of you, which I think is a blessing. But, you know, I could have potentially ended up right here in front of you without some of those deviations. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. <laughs> I tell you, yeah. just be patient for it's okay to wait. Um, it's okay to wait. Yeah, and I, I think having the patience to, to wait for the right answer, the right thing. Yeah. Um, is critical and not to feel like we always have to immediately act. Right. You know, um, so yeah, that's, that's my answer. I'm going to stick with that. I love it. That's a great answer. It's useful too. (laughs) Something people can put into practice. Um, I do ask one last question on the show. Um, it's not from the fishbowl. It was kind of the question that started this show. And that question is, did anything good happen today? Yeah, I think us chatting. That was really good, man. I think so too, man. I enjoyed it. I think I think we're oddly alike in a lot of ways. I think so the too. Perception of the world and general <laughs> philosophy. Generally, yeah, it, I agree. Well, you said a few other things in there. I said, "Oh man, we got more in common than we know." <laughs> yeah, it's like you're doing a podcast and I'm I'm doing a YouTube series, but I think that we're we're circling around you know the same type of uh, uh, concept and intent. Yeah, the intent exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. You you nailed it too with your first answer. I want people to know I care. I love that answer because that's what it's all about. I mean, yeah. not being afraid to care, man, and and just put it out there that people yeah. care. You know, they do, and so most people are good. And so I think that that's why I think this um, this approach has the ability to help people. Yeah, that's the hope. So this is your time right now to let people know. You know, how they can get in touch with you, find your work, you know, all the things that you want them to know about, you know, how to connect with you, basically, and and getting plugged into what you're doing. Yeah. So the best way is to actually go to Facebook and uh, search for Do Good Army. And that's where we post most of our updates, the latest materials, what's coming out. Uh, that's where we're staying connected and building that tribe. And also to go to uh, YouTube and search for do good and uh, we're not at the top yet 
So you have to do a little bit of searching. But once you find us on Do Good, uh, to like, share, and subscribe, because that's helping us to build up the monetization of views machine. Uh, so that way these episodes can start making a difference for these people that we're trying yeah. to help. And that's one thing just for the listeners so they know. I mean, they need to go watch those videos because they'll see who they're helping. I mean, th- this community does need help, and there's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, man, uh, thank you so much. I mean, I yeah, really am man. glad we connected, man. It's like a, a match made in heaven because the, the the overlap of the mission and the name and everything, I was like, this is kind of cool, right? I mean, in the yeah. same community. Uh, absolutely. You know, and it's like it's so it's like building up the, the good movement. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's hope more and more people jump on board. Yeah, I think they will. I'm more thankful every moment that I found. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Justin Roberts of Do Good. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider visiting findthegood.news donate where you can help me continue this good news mission from the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I thank you for pressing play and for seeking out this good news beacon.